This episode of the On Boys Parenting Podcast is sponsored by the Boys Alive Clubhouse. Yes, finally, there is an online retreat center for parents and teachers of boys, hosted by me, Janet Allison. I'm thrilled to be your host and your guide in this virtual community that supports you with resources, classes, real-time connections, both online and in person. I'm also opening up the vaults and sharing my over 20 years of expertise and materials with you. No more going it alone. Together, we learn, we share, we give and receive support, and we continue the important conversations that help us all become better equipped to confidently raise caring, healthy, capable men. Enjoy the Boys Alive Clubhouse for one month free trial. Go to members.boysalive.com. I'm so excited to welcome you there. That's members dot boysalive.com. And now on to this week's episode. Do you know what the term twice exceptional means? Twice exceptional or 2E people are both highly gifted and learning disabled. A 2E child might be able to do advanced math in their head, but struggle to read the word multiplication. Other 2E children are advanced intellectually, but don't comprehend the nuances of human relationships. That's the case for Bebot, a 10-year-old boy who prefers to go by his gaming handle. In a recent essay, his mother describes him as incredibly strong, extroverted, endlessly forgiving, and hilariously literal. Bebot, she says, will never need anyone to teach him reading, mathematics, or science. He does, however, need help understanding his fellow humans. With us today is Bebot's mom, Ramsey Hootman. Welcome, Ramsey. It is great to have you here. I'm so excited to learn about your family and learn more about Bebot. Glad to be here. Thanks. Tell us a little bit about your family. So my family, we live in the San Francisco Bay Area. My husband is a video game programmer. I'm a novelist. Uh, my oldest child, Bebot, for the purposes of this interview, is uh, 10 years old. And then I have a younger son, a six-year-old, who is mostly, as far as we know, uh, neurotypical. So often, one of the big challenges of parenting, right, is we have this child that we know nothing about. And especially when it's our oldest child, we, we have nothing to compare what we see to. I mean, there's, there's books, but come on. So tell us about Bebot, you know, as a baby, as a toddler, and when did you first realize that he had some pretty unique needs? Before you have a kid, you sort of have this idea that kids are mostly a combination of nature versus nurture, and you expect, you know, some of both. With this kid, who was our first, so yeah, really we had no expectations, it was obvious from the beginning that he was his own person, and we really had no control over that. <laughs> and it was kind of shocking in a way, because it was like, wow, this this doesn't come from either of us. We have no idea where it's coming from. From the point that he was inside of me, he was always going. Like <laughs> there was no like rest period. It was constant kicking, constant turning, 
And to the point where like, you could see like his feet coming out. It was (laughs) like, I had an alien inside of me. I even had to be induced for labor. They were, they were scheduling a C-section because he wouldn't settle in the head down position. He just kept going and going like he'd flip up one day and flip down and it never stopped. So (laughs) you had to be so uncomfortable towards the end of your pregnancy. Like it's one thing if you're, you know, baby, tiny little fetus is doing that. But when it's an eight month old child. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. no, it was not, it was not a fun pregnancy, (laughs) but you know, you don't know anything different. Oh, this is normal. And then when he, you know, when they finally delivered him, they caught him head down. They were like, let's go. We'll induce it right now. And um, when he came out, the cord was wrapped around his neck like five times. We like to say that he slept for about two weeks and then he woke up and never went back to sleep. He was the colicky nightmare who just screamed every night from he'd start at 8 p.m. and go until like 2 a.m. in the morning. And it it was just just constant for, I don't know, nine months at least. Janet and I are both like cringing and our hearts are going out to you because, you know, and anybody who's listening who has a child, which is the vast majority of you, that is so hard. It's hard to listen to your child cry, period. And then when nobody's getting any sleep for months on end, it's torture. Yeah. It's like, I went into periods where it was like, you know, almost hallucinatory (laughs) because it was so, you know, sleep deprivation and and stress and all this. Um, So, yeah. And then, um, you know, it just sort of continued from there. He eventually, like, once he was able to uh, control himself a little bit and move around, he was happier, but he was just always so driven, just like that next thing that, you know, and we had to go to the park, like for hours every day, just to get him out and get him around because he just needed constant stimulation, always needed the next new thing. So at what point did this turn into you seeking a diagnosis or were you busy doing some investigating on your own to try and understand what was going on? Yeah. So my husband and I are both kind of, uh, what we would consider, you know, sort of a borderline on the spectrum. So we're kind of aware that, you know, our personal histories kind of tend that way. And our families are, you know, none of us are like actually diagnosed with Asperger's or autism or anything like that, but that's what we were kind of watching out for. And so, you know, we're just, you know, aware of that. And, um, you know, kind of like if you have a history of heart disease, you're kind of looking for that we were aware that he was different from other kids and we're kind of like, well, you know, it's probably, you know, mild autism or, you know, something like that because um, it it didn't ever get to the level where he was like missing milestones, but he was, he was clearly just on a different developmental track than other children. So I would like anything that would sort of catch my attention. I would research it online when he was a baby, he was not interested in faces at all. It was kind of like, it was all about objects and, you know, looking at like light and stuff, which is, I understand, typical of kids with autism. It's well, still, again, typical of boys. Yeah, that's true. Infant boys tend to look more at moving objects mm. than faces. Yeah. But he wasn't doing like, you know how babies like you smile at them and they kind of smile back and stuff. It was almost as if he wasn't aware of that at all. So I was kind of like, you know, looking online, like what what do people do in this situation? And one thing um, I found was uh, set up a mirror 
and do things where your kid can see themselves. So I did that. I got him a mirror and sort of played in front of it so he could see himself and um, see me and sort of realize that, oh, you know, I have a face. I can do... (laughs) I can do smiling and expressions too. And so uh, that sort of developed from there. So I would just do different things like that. As far as a diagnosis, we didn't really seek one until we felt like we were kind of pushed into it by the school system. When he was, I want to say, yeah, was seven um, because it was first grade. His teacher was not really communicative we felt like he just needed some really, really minor accommodations in terms of just the teacher being aware of things and he had issues with fine motor control. So he just kind of little things, but she just wouldn't work with us at all. And it was clear that unless we had a paper in hand with, you know, something written on it from, you know, a specialist that we weren't going to get anywhere. Specialist Um, with fancy initials behind their name. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And, you know, it's the public school school system and we didn't want to like label him or whatever and have this follow him through whatever. But but it became clear, like if we were going to operate in the public school system and, you know, have him accommodated, this was going to be something that would be necessary for basically every, you know, difficult teacher or whatever. And it would just streamline things. So that's the point at which we took him to be like formally evaluated. I'm curious what his experience was in preschool and kindergarten. And you said that he needs help understanding his fellow humans. So how were his relationships with other toddlers, other Uh four-year-olds, five-year-olds? Yeah. Once he realized that other people were people, which did happen pretty quickly, he, like I said, he's an extrovert and he loves being around people. He doesn't necessarily understand them. So for us, it was all about teaching boundaries because he would just like jump on somebody to hug them. Like, I like you, so I'm going to like tackle you or whatever. And he's just like, you know, sort of over the top, but he wouldn't be able to read those cues of somebody else being like, ah, no, like get away from me or whatever. So he would just want to like love on people. And it took him a long time to understand that, um, well, (laughs) not everybody understands (laughs) you know, giant hugs in the same way. And he's a lot bigger than other kids his age. He's a big kid. That was kind of a problem too, for him to not overwhelm his peers. He didn't ever really have any major problems. We sent him like kind of part-time to a little private preschool and there was only like four or five other kids to start with. So it it was, you know, like a very home-based environment. And not overwhelming, which is kind of nice. One of the things I'm hearing as you're talking is this massive acceptance of this is your child, this is who he is, and I hear you, we often say to parents, you know, meet your child where they are, and that's Mm -hmm. what you were doing. You know, you noticed that he wasn't responding to your smile, and then you looked on the internet and you saw this mirror thing, so you're like, well, let's try that. So you kept trying to find other ways to continue to support his development, wherever Mm -hmm. he's at is where he's at. So what's next? Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I see, I've known other, you know, parents of, uh, you know, so-called special needs kids or whatever, who are like, kind of like fighting it. Like, you know, no, we're going to have this normal life. We're going to make it work. And I feel like that's just not (laughs) realistic for most cases. Like for us, I realized right away that we couldn't do library story time. 
we tried it once or once or twice. He couldn't sit. He couldn't behave. And like, you know, other kids, other kids can do that. <laughs> and that that's great for them. But but my kid can't. So we're going to go do something else that he can do. We are going to pause for a moment in this conversation with Ramsey Hoopman, mom of a 2E gifted child, and hear about the Boys Alive Clubhouse. So Janet, tell me what's been going on in Boys Alive Clubhouse. Well, Jen, this is so exciting. You know, I began my Facebook group on the leading edge back when Facebook groups were just getting started. And I feel the same way about the Boys Alive Clubhouse. This is a new pathway into the future. And what it does is it brings together a community of parents and teachers who are raising boys and advocating for boys. And we are in a clubhouse. So it's a enclosed community. It's fun. It's a way for us to talk to each other. Also within the clubhouse are resource files, videos and audios and PDFs that you can access on various topics, parenting quick fixes. Inside the clubhouse, you have access to courses and you have access to me. We will be doing live Q&A video calls. I will respond to your questions. Other parents are there to support you as well. It is called the Boys Alive Clubhouse and you can find it at members.boysalive.com. And that will take you to a landing page. You can read more about it and sign up there for a monthly subscription. And when you say that there are all these resources and courses in there, you have been doing this for 20 years plus. So you've amassed a lot of resources already. A lot of questions that parents have and come to the clubhouse with you likely already have some answers and support waiting right there. Absolutely. And it's the way that parents, and there are very, you know, we all love to learn differently. Some of us want to read. Some of us want to just give me a quick video, give me an audio I can download and listen to while I'm walking. It's all there in various ways that meet your schedule and your learning needs. But most importantly is this ability to connect with each other. And what I really love about it is that if you choose, you don't have to, but if you choose to add your location, you can find other clubhouse members that live in your same town. Or maybe you're going to visit a city and you want to connect with someone there and have a play date with the kids. You can connect through the clubhouse and know that you can meet some people in person human contact? I know. Via the internet in a healthy way. Mm, So good. We are all about that here at On Boys. Tell us again, um, how do people become a part of and join the Boys Alive Clubhouse? Go to members.boysalive.com and you'll see all the information there. And I will be waiting on the other side to greet you. And now back to our On Boys show. At what point did you realize that he was highly intelligent? You know, sometimes, uh-huh. especially when kids are little and they, they can't talk yet, we don't see those things. And then when you have a child who is highly intelligent, but also learning disabled in some ways, so yeah. often the 
the challenges they have with learning overshadow what they know. It inhibits them expressing it, at least in the ways that school and society is often used to seeing it. Yeah, well, <laughs> I, I first realized he was a smart little cookie pretty early on because of uh, certain actions he would take. Like when we were potty training him, we would have these standoffs where <laughs> I knew he knew what I wanted. And um, at one point um, he had his little like potty seat and yep. he didn't, he didn't want to take a nap. And so he would keep making excuses like, Oh, I need to sit on the potty and stuff like that to come out. And I was like, no, you're going to stay in your room. I don't care if you take a nap, whatever. And so I put his potty seat in his room and I'm like, if you need to go potty, you will go in this and do it in your room and I don't want to hear from you. And a few minutes later, there's like a knock on his door. And he's at this point, he's two years old. Okay. His potty, his potty training at two years old. He's like, mommy, 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 mommy. And I like open the door and he's like, no potty. And I look around and the potty's gone. <laughs> he took it and he hid it inside his closet. And he's like, I need to use the potty and there's no potty here. <laughs> As a two-year-old. Just this level of, like, forethought and predicting. It was like, wow. like <laughs> Wow. And he would have, like, four-hour tantrums when he got mad. It was just whew, really intense. So he was in first grade when you mm -hmm. felt like it would be helpful for you as a family and for your son to get a diagnosis because then you have a, a tool really you have something to yeah. help you pry the doors open to what he needs how did you initiate that process and then also how do you explain to him what's going on right so <laughs> that was interesting so basically I just went through my pediatrician and I was kind of like you know we're we sort of suspect you know he's on the spectrum can we get evaluated and at that point, we just kind of told him like, you know, you're, you're a little different than other kids and we're just going to go for, it's going to, it was a day long thing. We're just going to go and there's going to be some people that are going to talk to you and, um, you know, play some games with you and do some testing. And it actually helped because um, here in the Bay Area, we have a lot of companies and stuff that are looking to test stuff on kids like apps and whatnot. So I had already taken him to a couple of things like that, like uh, LeapFrog is headquartered here. And sometimes they have a call for, you know, kids come test our apps. So we had done that a couple of times. So he sort of like understood this, oh, we're going to this strange place and these people are going to ask me questions. And it wasn't a big deal for him. And so we took him and they were like screening him for ASD, but it was sort of a comprehensive everything. Mm -hmm. And um, that was the point where we sort of realized that uh, it wasn't what we thought because the whole thing was kind of funny because we took him in and they started and they separated him and us, but we could tell every time we sort of met with the specialists that they were getting like more and more excited. And at the end they were like, well, it's not ASD. It's, it's really a couple of other things. And number one, your kid is just off the charts gifted. They gave him a kid's IQ test and he sort of literally maxed it out. So they officially diagnosed him with ADHD with a couple of subcategories of things. And one of those things is an auditory processing deficit. And that was basically what was producing what we saw as sort of like the ASD, like uh, inability to understand people. And it was basically because he has a really hard time understanding verbal input. 
So he just wasn't hearing things. And because he wasn't really receiving auditory information, he wasn't developing those social skills. And he was sort of relying on other cues to do things and figure things out. He wasn't really like, you know, paying attention to this whole stream of input because it just wasn't really like registering for him. Paying attention to directions and requests. Yeah. Uh-huh. I do want to just plug in here that ASD is autism spectrum disorder. You know, and I want to draw attention to the fact that so often uh, we parents are very reluctant to take our kids in for a diagnosis. We're reluctant to label our kids. Um, We're concerned about possible negative impacts of all of that. What I love about your story is that it also illustrates the fact that it can be so empowering and mm-hmm. relieving in a way, you knew that your child was unique and all kids are unique, but he was unique in ways that other kids weren't. Mm-hmm. And when you got this information, like suddenly he made sense to you in a way. Yeah, it was really informative for us just to be able to help him much more effective and precisely. And just to be able to go to other people like his teachers and be like, hey, this is what's really going on. Because like his first grade teacher had sort of created this whole picture of what she thought was going on with him. She thought he was like this, you know, extreme perfectionist and that he was not wanting to like write or do things because he was anxious about not getting it right and stuff, which wasn't the case at all. And we knew that wasn't the case, you know, just to be able to go back and say like, hey, he's actually like this, this, and this is what he's having difficulty with and being able to sort of pinpoint this is the support that he needs is really great. So how did you change your parenting based on what you learned. So you mentioned Uh that auditory processing deficit. You know, I would imagine that you suddenly realize, okay, using a bunch of words to tell this kid what I want him to do is not the best way to handle things. Yeah. Once we started really paying attention to that, we realized what a big deal it was for him. If you're, if you're talking to him and, you know, expecting that he's going to be receiving this information He's really not. He can look like he's getting it. He can be, you know, seem like he's totally engaged and he's looking you in the eye, but he's probably only getting like 50% of it. So Mm -hmm. um, you have to do other things like, you know, if it's important, like make sure he gets it in writing. For example, if you're trying to get his attention, if you yell his name over and over again, it can just go right past him. He's not intentionally ignoring you, (laughs) Mm -hmm. but you got to make eye contact or you got to put your hand on his shoulder. Just little things like that that make a huge difference in terms of communicating with him. And I think also just realizing that it wasn't a discipline issue. It wasn't him being disrespectful or anything. It's just a challenge that he has and sort of just giving him a little extra space and a little extra grace there. And giving yourself that grace also. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So I can see, you know, thinking about him in first grade and and we've had other parents in this same dilemma, maybe not to the extreme, but this dilemma of a child who is highly intellectual and advanced in that way, along with the social emotional piece that isn't quite Mm -hmm. up to where he needs to be developmentally. Or where the school thinks he should be developmentally. And where the school thinks he should be developmentally. And, you know, a lot of parents in kindergarten are questioning, do I send him to first grade? Because Mm -hmm. he's going to be bored 
if he doesn't go. And yet this whole social emotional piece is not yet in place for him. How do you even still balance this extremely high intellect with keeping him interested along with the piece of, you know, you have to be able to understand your fellow human beings? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's honestly been really difficult. That's sort of our, you know, just a constant conversation that my husband and I have with each other in terms of, you know, are we doing the right thing for him? Because the school so far has been really resistant to work with us on anything. They don't want to skip him. Um, the public school that he's in, they really, really resist skipping kids. And I kind of agree, like he, you know, he has his friend group. I don't want to pull him away from that. But because he does do quite well on testing, they're really unmotivated to provide more for him. So we've kind of come to the conclusion that like basically, you know, school is going to be like our primary focus there is going to be his social development. And we'll just focus on that and try to supplement, like as far as his education goes, try to get him opportunities to do, to stretch himself academically in other ways. Every summer we send him to like this academic camp through UC Berkeley that he gets to do higher level math. And that's like his opportunity where he gets to be stretched there. So we kind of try to do that. Both my husband and myself had similar issues when we were in school. So (laughs) we're pretty familiar with this, you know, this whole thing. And, you know, for us, it was kind of like our, you know, we were never challenged in school. And so we tended to like anything that we learned was things that we taught ourselves, like in our, you know, our extra time, whatever we were interested in. So we kind of like pay attention to his interests and we do things that he's really interested in, like robots, math, programming, that sort of thing. Um, I relate to what you're saying so much. I mean, I had similar experiences as a child and my oldest, who I mentioned, you know, when you're talking about those two-year-old battles was the same. You used (laughs) the word driven. Oh my God. Yes. (laughs) Um, And I've realized through, through parenting him, raising him, wrestling with education, both the school system and we homeschooled for a while. (laughs) One of the challenges when you have a gifted child You know, first of all, schools are trying to get everybody up to a certain level. If your kid's Mm -hmm. already at that level, he's not their biggest concern. Yeah. Like, that's just reality. (laughs) And then the other part, when you're talking about highly gifted, the truth of the matter is most of the adults in that school can't comprehend even thinking on his level. And I don't mean that as any kind of criticism or diss of the adults, but it's hard to even express what his needs might be to people that can't understand that. Yeah. And what's really bothered me through a lot of this is I feel like people often think either I am the one pushing my kid or I am totally deluded. Like I'm this parent who thinks my child is so amazingly smart. And and so they kind of write us off like, you know, oh, these are the parents who think their kid is a genius because he really, he doesn't come off like that because he's a goofy kid. So unless you know him personally, you don't get it. And uh, so just breaking through that has been really, really challenging. You recently published an essay that I just loved called Teaching My 2E Kids Social Skills with Star Trek, The Next Generation. Mm -hmm. 
full disclosure, I was inclined to love this because I happen to love Star Trek, the next generation. There's that piece. Tell about that. You know, how did you help your kid learn through watching Star Trek together? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. First, I just have to say, this is ironic because I'm totally a Star Wars fan, like diehard Star Wars. Fan. Uh-huh. And neither of my kids like Star Wars. Anyways. Um... Clearly you are failing as a parent then, Ramsey. <laughs> I know, I know. I know. Such a failure. I like Star Trek as well, too. I've always liked Next Generation. It's great. When we got his diagnosis, it was kind of like, well, yeah, he really does need help understanding other people and and how the world works. And so we sort of um, decided that we were going to sit down every night and watch a television show that had, uh, number one, real people, (laughs) Um, because, you know, he would gravitate towards cartoons or he prefers video games. Uh, If he's going to choose TV or video games, it's going to be video games. So um, we're looking for a show that had a lot of social elements. And the first one we tried was Malcolm in the Middle. It's kind of like our lives. <laughs> it's very similar. We tried that and it just like made him really uncomfortable and he didn't understand the humor at all. It was just went whoosh over his head. And <laughs> I think it was a little too close to home for him. So then we're kind of like, you know, what, what do we like? And we're like, well, we really want to watch, you know, Star Trek The Next Generation with him at some point. Like, let's give it a try. And as soon as we started, it was like, oh, yeah, this is it. This is it. Because it's, you know, it's got that science element that he's really into. And that sort of grips him. And this, the spaceships and the, the military ranks and all that is just like completely fascinating. But it's also, it's very deliberately paced. It's not like flashing from one thing to another thing. It's not expecting a lot from the viewer. It's kind of like watching uh, like a play in that sense. It's very like, you know, it unfolds in that, in that manner, like step by step. And it pays attention to people's characters and their faces and what they're feeling. And so it, it just worked really well. And Star Trek The Next Generation features a character called Data. Data is an android. So Data is mechanical. He's a robot. He is not human, but he looks human. And throughout this series, he's really trying to learn and understand humans and Mm -hmm. what it means to be human. And why do humans do some of the crazy, to him, things that Mm -hmm. they do? Yeah. And that, that was the perfect setup for so many conversations that we were able to have with him. Why is Data confused right now? You know, what what is he learning about? What is he trying to discover about humans? Why do humans do that? You know, I don't know. Okay, let's discuss it. That sort of thing. Um, it just opened, you know, opened the floodgates to all of these sorts of conversations that he wouldn't really think to ask himself, like, because you, you don't really know what you're missing, right? But so we would kind of, you know, watch the show. And if If something was not like, you know, there's things that are stated explicitly on screen where characters are like, you know, I'm feeling this way. Okay, that's obvious. But if something happens where we're supposed to infer from uh, their, you know, their expression or the plot going on, you know, what they're feeling, we'd pause and be like, hey, what's this character feeling right now? You know, let's talk about that. How do you know that's what they're feeling? And what do you think they're going to do next? So just sort of exercising those muscles. What I love most about your story, certainly your experiences with Bebot are unique. Nobody mm-hmm. else is having that same exact struggle with their child. Yeah. <laughs> but this whole issue of school is not exactly meeting his needs. There's some problems there. There's some challenges there. 
more parents, I would say the majority of parents are in that same situation. You're almost never going to find a school in education setting that is the perfect fit for your child. Mm, that's so true, you yeah. do the best you can and then, okay, what else can we do as mm-hmm. a family? How do yeah. we facilitate what this child needs? And I hear you talking about other ways you do that, you know, the summer camp. And then you also use everyday opportunities to teach him, mm-hmm. you know? Using a TV show to help your kid understand social skills, that's awesome. And it reminds me, my second son, who is now 19, he used to look at me and he would say, who says you can't learn anything from TV? You can learn a lot from a lot of non-traditional sources. That's right. My kids actually really love the Magic School Bus cartoons. Those are fantastic. They've learned so much from those. Some of the takeaways I'm hearing here are really to... Trust yourself and look at your child. None of us know the exact right steps to take at any given moment. We are all confused and overwhelmed by parenting and these these little creatures before us that we have, we're living with and we're responsible for. But if you look at that child and you try to ascertain what his needs are in the moment and do your best to facilitate that, it's hard to go wrong. Yeah, and my encouragement to parents would just be, keep trying. If, you know, if an expert tells you try this and it doesn't work, like don't just throw your hands up and be like, well, oh, I guess, you know, it's just going to be like this or whatever. Like, you know, you kind of have to take the, you know, scientific method approach. Like, you know, you just, you try one thing, you see what happens. If it doesn't work, you try something else. And Ramsey too, did you, have you found a community of other parents that have also two e-kids that have provided support? Or is there some way that you as the parents are leaning on other parents? Yeah, I don't. I actually don't know anybody locally. But yeah, I have a Facebook group that um, I belong to, a 2E parenting group. We can share our frustrations, mostly with the system, and <laughs> sort of trade information. Like, I think that was one of the places I went when I was first sort of trying to figure out, like, how do I even get a diagnosis? Like, mm-hmm. do I just ask my doctor? Like, what? I don't even know how this works. And I've gone back there over and over again to be like, okay, so I have, I, you know, I'm in the public school system. Like, how do I approach them? Like, how yeah. do I do this IEP thing? And um, just getting advice from people who have done it before is like incredibly helpful. One of the things I learned researching uh, in preparation for this episode is that the term 2E really only came into usage in the 1990s. So there's still not a lot of knowledge of this. I am going to include some links in the show notes to articles and organizations that have some more information. And Ramsey, if you're willing to share with us the name of that Facebook group, I'd be happy to include that as well. So Ramsey, what would you say to those listening out there who are maybe more at the beginning stages of recognizing that their kid doesn't necessarily fit the, the lane that our system, our school system is expecting them to fit. What would your advice be to them? I would say, number one, don't get frustrated with your kid. Get frustrated with the system. Your kid is who they are and what they need more than anything is just your acceptance and your love and knowing that they can come to you no matter what it is. Just that you are their number one advocate and 
I know it's totally frustrating at times, <laughs> but, um, you know, just try, try to make time to like connect with your kids. Don't make it all about their, their weaknesses, just find their strengths and, and work with those. So, you know, you can, you can build them up. Number two, I would say, don't be afraid of a diagnosis. You know, your it doesn't change your kid. Your kid's not going to be somebody else just because they have a label, but it is a tool that you can use and it can be super helpful. And then we didn't really talk about this in the interview, but number three, also don't be afraid to try medication. I was really, really, really resistant to that for a long time. And when we finally did try it, like just the smallest dose, it was like, oh my gosh, I feel horrible that we didn't try this before because it was so magically effective in a number of ways and so improved the quality of his life. And uh, so, yeah, I think there's a lot of stigma around that, but you can always stop. Like (laughs) it's not a permanent decision that you have to do forever. You can try it and stop if it doesn't work. So you have nothing to lose really. That is so much wise advice right there in those three points, Ramsey. Thank you so much for sharing your experience and telling us more about BeBot. And we, of course, just appreciate you being willing to open open up the doors of your home and your heart with us. Well, thank you for letting me talk about this. I, it's, it is really close to my heart and it's something that I feel passionately about. So uh, thanks. Thanks for joining us. We are Jennifer L.W. Fink and Janet Allison, and we are here to support you in parenting and teaching tomorrow's men.